0: Hello, welcome to The Word Diet on the Pure Radio Network. My name is Eric Schonsberg. My goal with this show is to help people read and understand the amazing Word of God. The show is named for my book project, The Word Diet, which is reading a chapter a day for a year from the Bible to understand the arc of the scriptures. The Word Diet is good for a devotional, but ideally it's done in groups or at least with partners. That way you get better accountability and richer discussions. And it's fine for seasoned Bible readers, but really I'm aiming the project at novices and strugglers, those who have not yet gotten into the great Word of God. If that's you, I hope you'll grab a couple friends and meet weekly over some coffee and talk through the Word Diet and the weekly reading. Uh, If that's not you, then you probably have friends that are in that spot, and I hope you'll consider starting a small group to work through the Word Diet. More information is available at ThoroughlyEquipped.org. For the radio show, we're in the book of Exodus, a terrific book. My goal with the show is the same as the book, to encourage you to read and help you understand the Bible. So please read along with us before, during, and after listening to the show. We're in the middle of a seven-week series on the Ten Commandments, which is in the middle of our series on Exodus previous episodes for the Ten Commandments, the Book of Exodus, and the other books we've done are available by podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. On today's show, we've reached Commandments 5 and 6. We're handling the commandments two at a time after a two-week introduction. So I look forward to talking about honoring our parents and not killing people. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for our opportunity to dig into your scriptures. We thank you that they are so amazing, so intricate, so beautiful, and that they offer so much about who you are and what you want for us and from us every day. In Jesus' name, amen. Please pray for the Pure Radio Network, the station, and this show will be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in Exodus 20, continuing our series on the Ten Commandments, and we're covering Commandments 5 and 6 today. The first thing is to know that they are in a certain order on purpose. And so a lot of people say they're fond of the Ten Commandments, but they don't have them memorized. They have no sense of how they line up together or very little sense. So trying to instruct on not just the commandments individually, but how do they connect? And so, we've reached a key breaking point in the commandments, that commandments 1 through 4 are about loving and worshiping God. Commandments 5 through 10 are about loving others. And of course, it's fitting that it should be in this order. Matthew Henry says, man had a maker to love before he had a neighbor to love. And justice and charity are acceptable acts of obedience to God only when they flow from the principles of piety. In other words, salvation's by grace. We're not saved by good works, but as Ephesians 2 8 through 10 points out, we're saved to do good works. But you've got to get the order correct. Bill Heibel says, He knows we must be at peace with Him and under the influence of the Spirit before we can hope to relate to others satisfactorily. In other words, as best as we might want to love others, we're not going to love them well if we don't love God well. This reminds me of trying to give counsel to non-Christians, and often it's difficult because if they're not observing Commandments 1 through 4, then the counsel I give to them is different and limited because you can't do Commandments 5 through 10. You can't love others as well if you don't love God first. The other thing that's really cool here is that God refers to bringing them out of Egypt to start the introduction to the first four commandments. And here in Commandment 5, as he starts things off, he refers to bringing them into Canaan. And as we've talked about, bringing them out of Egypt and bondage is a picture of our justification and salvation. And bringing them into Canaan, the promised land, is a picture of our sanctification. And so again, the ordering is appropriate and interesting lines up with how God introduces commandment one and then commandment five. On the idea that commandments five through ten represent the second great commandment, Matthew Henry observes, "...as religion toward God is an essential branch of universal righteousness, so righteousness toward men is an essential branch of true religion." They go hand in hand. Alec Motyer notes the book-ending structure of the commandments, that they start with towards God in order of thought, word, and deed, and then it moves to responsibilities toward people in terms of deeds, words, and thought, and thus it's one rounded, indivisible whole." Matier observes that our attention to the outward and visible realities of the second section of the law reveal how seriously we take the spiritual realities of the first. The scriptures say the same thing, Romans 13, 9, and 10, the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Matthew 7, 12, Jesus says, So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. And of course, directly speaking, the two great commandments Jesus talks about in Matthew 22. And then the actually greater, less popular version of this is in Mark 12, verses 28 through 34. The other thing to say by way of introduction is that the fifth commandment is transitional. Along with Commandments 1 through 4, this is the last use of the Lord your God, and it will not appear in Commandments 6 through 10. So, in this sense, Commandment 5 actually belongs more with Commandments 1 through 4, even though it clearly has connections to the last five as well. Now, what's the deal here? Well, given parents' similar role to God, for example, Malachi 1 6, a son honors his father and a slave his master. If I'm a father, where is the honor due me? So there's a similar connection to hierarchy, both with respect to God and with respect to parents and others, as we'll talk about. And so it seems like, at least indirectly, this is the most important of the last six because it speaks to our relationship with God, with others, and ourselves as individuals. So what are those parallels? Well, of course, there's a parallel in that God and parents both create and nurture our material life. So first relationship after God, in terms of time and importance, is the parents. As Cass puts it, God may have created the world and the human race, but you owe your own existence to your parents. And remember as well that the fourth commandment linked to creation. And so with that buzzing in our ears, we're thinking of both the creation of the world and our own creation by our parents. There's also a parallel in using authority and discipline and otherwise trying to transmit values, both of which are concerns of God and parents. Both should express and We should understand unconditional love through God and our parents. There's also an interest in name, right, that we're to reflect and represent our family name as we do with God, as per the third commandment, and as we respect the names of others in the ninth commandment. I think we also understand that a child's view of God is influenced by parents' belief and character. In this way, parents are like gods to children, especially when they're younger. If we sum this up, Anthony Tomasino says it's the first relationship we experience, the one that defines us more fully than any other. It's second in significance only to our relationship with God and shaping us, and in some ways it mirrors our relationship with God. Bill Hybels, what relationship has more potential for both love and hate and joy and sorrow than the parent-child relationship, besides perhaps marriage? And that's going to be dealt with in the seventh commandment. Okay, so let's cover the fifth commandment itself. Exodus 20, verse 12, Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Let's start with the second half of the verse, which is the promise, so that you may live long in the land the Lord is giving you. Similar language appears a bunch of times in Deuteronomy, as Moses is wrapping things up before they enter the promised land. For example, Deuteronomy 5.16 phrases it as that it may go well with you, but we see that similar language with respect to all of the commandments uh, throughout Deuteronomy. Paul picks it up in Ephesians six two as the first commandment with a promise. In fact, it's the only commandment that has a promise attached to it. And Paul doubles down on that by saying it's on the earth. So he adds that phrase to reiterate that this is really important to our earthly results. And the flip side of this is also important that extreme failure here could be punishable by death. We'll talk about this Uh, later in the episode today, but two of four cases where capital punishment is prescribed or commanded is with respect to mistreating parents. Exodus 21 15, attacking your parents or Exodus 21 17, cursing your parents. And this isn't just in the law. Proverbs 20 verse 20, if someone curses their father or mother, their lamp will be snuffed out in pitch darkness. Proverbs 30 verse 17, the eye that mocks a father that scorns an aged mother will be pecked out by the ravens of the valley, Will be eaten by the vultures. So it's not just a commandment with a promise, but later it becomes a commandment with a curse that if it's not fulfilled, deep punishment is going to follow. Now there's no recorded episodes of children being put to death as per the commandments in Exodus 21 15 and 17, but it was probably threatened a lot. It's probably also dealing with adult children more than little kids and concerns about accusations and slander, which again takes us back to the severity of the ninth commandment, which we'll get to later. So why this promise? I think for individuals, there is a correlation between the quantity and certainly the quality of one's life. The ability to follow commandments six through ten is causal with one's family background, and it's correlated, at least, with our attitude towards our parents. How we honor our fathers is related to the way we honor our father. And given a good God, it's good for them and for us to do so. Dallas Willard says, "...the promise is rooted in the realities of the human soul. A long and healthy existence requires that we be grateful to God for who we are, and we cannot be grateful for who we are without being thankful for our parents through whom our life came." For the New Testament believer and church, the family is the chief mechanism for communicating and transmitting the gospel, the faith, and the way of life. Without honoring one's parents, it's possible, but not as likely, that the way of life and the faith will be passed along. This is not just true for believers in the church, but also for the nation, both Israel and us. Ezekiel 22, seven connects failure here with the fall of Jerusalem. And families are essential for peace, unity, stability, and growth. The home is the basic unit of society, and the family is the first unit created by God. In one sense, the entire book of Genesis is about God working with an individual and an increasingly large family until it becomes a nation in Exodus. And if you can't get the family right, good luck with getting the nation right. There's also an indirect connection here that if you're going to respect the authority of parents, that helps you respect authority with respect to church and with respect to state. And so, of course, that's important to the nation as well. The authorities have been established by God, Romans 13, and if we dishonor parents, we're likely to dishonor the state as well with the problems that go with that. All else equal, this underlines the importance of defending the sanctity of marriage and the home. The command itself is in the first part of verse 12, honor your parents. First of all, it's addressed to children, but note that it's aimed at all age groups. I think a lot of times we imagine that it's only talking to 10-year-olds, but it's talking to everybody. This is also the other side of the more common, how parents raise children, sorts of discussions that we find in the scriptures. For example, Ephesians 6:4: fathers do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. And a point i like to make throughout ephesians 5 and 6 is that paul is commanding things of husbands and wives etc husbands love your wives wives respect your husbands but there's an implied command there that wives should be lovable that husbands should be respectable and here that children should not seek to exasperate their parents Third point to make here is notice that it says to honor both parents, and that's certainly noteworthy. Leviticus 19.3 actually reverses it. Each of you must respect your mother and father, and you must observe my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. So again, see the linking of commandments 4 and 5. So this emphasizes equality between the parents, which would be really surprising in a patriarchal society. And it also implicitly points to valuing spouses, especially women. If you're a son raised under a command to honor your mother, it should be much easier to honor and value your spouse. Now, notice that honor is positive rather than prohibitive. The commandment could have been, don't dishonor. But ironically, this is more restrictive and more demanding. Tomasino says honoring our parents shouldn't be a burden. It is a privilege, just like honoring God. The Fourth and Fifth Commandments are the only positive commandments, but that allows them to stand out more, it also requires more attention to how best to do it, and it doesn't allow us to settle. As we'll talk about, honoring parents is actually much easier said than done, and it's quite complicated. For one thing, it's a command to do it as well as you can while you can, while they're alive, and when they die, you still honor them and their memory. Now, the word honor here is kebed, meaning heavy or weighty. And that's what we saw for Pharaoh's heart being heavy at times. So that's interesting to bring that back. If they're heavy and weighty, as our parents, we treat them as such. The term is usually connected to wealth since people could eat well and be heavy. In other words, we should treat our parents like royalty is the implication. And I think we have some applications here as well to how we treat in-laws and the elderly in general. Last point to make here about honor is that it's not the words like worship, like, obey, and love. This last word, love, is really interesting because we're commanded to love God. We're commanded to love our neighbors. We're commanded to love aliens. One angle is to imagine that it's superfluous, but if you've had difficult parents, I don't think loving is something we can take for granted. You could also say that love can't be commanded, but it is commanded with God, neighbor, and aliens. I don't think that works either. I think one answer here is that honor supersedes love when you're dealing with authority. Love is not the important thing there, it's honor and respect. Or we think back to Ephesians 5 with husbands and wives and the use of the term respect there. Another answer here is that it takes us back to commandments one through four and the commandment five is a bridge from those earlier commandments and how we honor God. We love God, but we also honor, respect, revere and have awe for God. Cass observes that the term honor is not altogether congenial. It implies distance, inequality, looking up to another with deferential respect, reverence, and even some measure of fear. It is like what is owed to God, for it is rooted in the feeling of awe. Last point to make here is that honor implies some boundaries. For example, when Paul revisits this in Ephesians 6, he adds the phrase, in the Lord, which aligns authority properly. 1 Peter 2.17 Show respect to everyone, love the family of believers, fear God, honor the emperor. So we don't fear the emperor, we don't love the emperor, we honor the emperor, and it's a relationship to fearing God. All those things have to be held in balance. All right, let's take our first break here. Please consider becoming a P3 partner at pureradio.org to pray, provide, and promote the work of this ministry. Please spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, and this show. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in Exodus 20, covering Commandments 5 and 6 today. In the first segment today we covered commandment five honor your father and mother talked about the verse in great detail what's left to do here is to define honor more closely and to talk about what that looks like in terms of actions and to apply it to our daily life so what is honor well first of all it's an attitude right that implies value reverence putting weight on something showing respect setting above others a special degree of respect based on character, office, or nature. It can also mean to prize highly and to care for. Leviticus 19.3 talks about reverence, and the term is used only for a proper attitude toward God and parents. So it's more attitude than specific actions. In this, it's like commandments 1 and 10, It goes beyond how one acts to their face and it's more relationship than regulations, but actions will usually and naturally follow. So it's an attitude that implies actions. So let's break this up into different groups of people. So what does this look like as children in the home? Well usually it's going to be to obey and to cooperate and relatively joyfully on top of that. Parents often use the phrase first-time obedience, and certainly children should do that as well versus having to be repeatedly asked. They should address their parents with respect, aim for mature conversation, tell the truth, and hold confidences in those conversations. Kids should talk positively about their parents behind their backs. They should not take advantage of their naivete. They should forgive their failures and affirm their efforts. Ideally, it looks like Proverbs 17, 16, that parents are the pride of their children. Now, this commandment is usually applied to young children of parents, but all the other commandments are more specifically aimed at adults. Why not this one, too? At the least, we want to make sure we think about the implications for us as adults. We also see a number of kids who act like knuckleheads, older kids, in the Bible. Think of Ham, Jacob, Eli's sons. And in our own time, it's common for young adults to live at home who want to be treated like adults, but they're not adulting yet. So what does this look like for us as adults? How do we honor our parents after we leave home? Proverbs twenty-three twenty-two: listen to your father who gave you life. Do not despise your mother when she's old. Leviticus nineteen thirty-two: stand up in the presence of the aged, show respect for the elderly and revere your God. I am the Lord. Specifically, we should listen to them and weigh their input. doesn't mean we always do what they say, but we should weigh it as people who are older than us and often have done more things than we have done. Certainly it means to invest time in them. Maybe this looks like notes or phone calls saying, I love you, expressing affection and appreciation for them, to serve and to care for them. Think of the book of Ruth or think about 1 Timothy 5 and the passage about taking care of the elderly in verses 4 and 8. To some extent, this might be materially, but that's much less of an issue today with greater wealth and social security. You know, We don't want them to live at a subsistence level, but most of this, I think, is emotional, taking care of them. But there can be some physical, uh, material issues here as well. Sometimes it's difficult to receive this as parents, given their pride or the potential for embarrassment. And sometimes it's tough on kids as well to see them reduced from who were in essence gods to us when we were much younger, to increasingly helpless. And like other relationships, a lot of times this sort of care requires a lot of time. And although we often have quite a bit of money, we're often stingy with the thing that's needed most, which is time. And that's true of our parents as they get older as well. So we do what's necessary, but beyond that we should do more than what's necessary, given what they've given us, at least in terms of giving us life. We shouldn't view them as a burden, we shouldn't make decisions out of convenience, but out of love. Bill Heibel says, I suspect that God gave the fifth commandment because he knew how easy it would be for us to develop a disrespectful attitude toward our parents. As children, we're basically selfish. As teenagers, we think our parents are hopelessly ignorant. As young adults, we become consumed with the responsibilities of work and marriage. And as middle-aged adults, we view the need of our aged parents as wearisome burdens that infringe on our hard-earned freedom. Or as Tomasino puts it, the idea of inconveniencing ourselves for the sake of our parents is inconceivable to many of us. We've apparently forgotten how much we inconvenienced them while we were growing up. Who is it more fitting that they turn to but us? Tomasino goes on to say, there's a certain poetic charm to the system. While growing up, the children had depended on their parents for everything. Now the tables are turned. The parents would learn to depend on their children. So in a sense, we're repaying our parents, or at least an idealized version of our parents. And if we're not willing to do so in the face of good parenting, how ungrateful we are. And if we're not willing to do so in the face of poor parenting, then we're looking to repay God's love for us with scorn and apathy towards those who gave us life. And it just is incoherent in God's good kingdom. So what do we do about parents who are not particularly honorable? One of the ironies of this question is that the commandment is given to young Israelites who are about to have 40 years of trouble in the wilderness because their parents were knuckleheads. And so this commandment and this question would definitely be banging around in their heads. The first thing in the commandment to note is there's no exception or exemption given. How do we do it? Well, we should respect the office itself, if not the person, and then respect the person as much as possible. Look for ways to respect them. Think about having an inept boss. As a Christian, we're still commanded to respect the boss. Or think about a president that you don't care about much. You pray for them. You respect the office, even though you have a hard time respecting the person. Your failure to honor your parents hurts the office and the institution of parenthood above and beyond whatever you're doing to them. Another consideration is that we tend to overblame our parents for how we turned out. Dr. Laura makes this point in her book on the 10 commandments. She says to blame one's parents for one's lot in life is simplistic, unfair and untrue. And ultimately, in spite of all, we remain the final architects of our lives. We also know broadly that these things all connect. We're not Gnostic. We don't believe that our attitudes and actions in one area are unrelated to other areas. In a sense, this is a a spiritual discipline that when we handle difficult parents, it will help us deal with other sorts of difficult people. It's important to us in protecting us from destructive thoughts and attitudes. And if you're going to do forgiveness and not get into anger and resentment, then what better place to start? I really love what Frederick Beekner says in his book of definitions on parents. He says, Honor your father and your mother, says the fifth commandment. Honor them for having taken care of you before you were old enough to take care of yourself. Honor them for the sacrifices they made on your behalf, including the ones you would have kept them from making if you'd had the chance. Honor them for having loved you. But how do you honor them when well-intentioned as they may have been, they made terrible mistakes with you that have shadowed your life ever since? How do you honor them when, far from loving you or taking care of you, they literally or otherwise abandoned you? How do you honor them when physically or sexually emotionally they abused you? The answer seems to be that you are to honor them even so. Honor them for the pain that made them what they were and kept them from being what they might otherwise have become. Honor them because there were times when, even at their worst, they were doing the best they knew how to do. Honor them for the roles they were appointed to play, father and mother, capital F, capital M because even when they played them abominably or didn't play them at all, the roles themselves are holy the way priesthood is holy, even when the priest is a scoundrel. Honor them because, however unthinkingly or irresponsibly, they gave you your life. Or as Marianne Robinson puts it, every human being is worthy of honor, but the conscious discipline of honor is learned from the setting apart of the mother and father who usually labor and are heavy laden and may be cranky or stingy or ignorant or overbearing, Believe me, I know this can be a difficult commandment to keep, but I believe also that the rewards of obedience are great because at the root of real honor is always the sense of the sacredness of the person who is its object. Dallas Willard pursues the same thought. He writes, At the heart of our identity lies our family and our parents in particular. We cannot be thankful for who we are unless we can be thankful for them. Not certainly for all the things they've done, for they may have been quite horrible, and in many cases we must come to have pity on them before we can be thankful for them. In training disciples to hear and do the words of their master, a major point will often be to help them honor their parents. First, the individual disciples must be honest about who and what their parents really are and how they truly feel about them. Then they must confess the wrongs of attitude and action that they have done to their parents and ask for forgiveness. Then they must accept their parents for who and what they are, have mercy on them, and forgive them. For some of you listening to this, this may be a huge deal. It may be preventing you from discipleship, from loving God, loving others. You've got to resolve, forgive your parents. Ultimately, the answer to this is because God said so. If he's a good and great God, then it must be in our best interest to obey the fifth commandment. Finally, let's think about the ministry of Christ in applying the above principles. We have his teaching in Matthew 15 about Corbin, which were resources de- dedicated to God, and Christ criticizes the Pharisees for claiming that was the case instead of helping their parents. In Luke 2, 41 through 52, Jesus was obedient to his parents. He was teaching and asking questions. He was seeking knowledge at the temple, but ultimately it was about his obedience to his parents at that young age. John chapter 2, with the first miracle in his ministry at the wedding, Christ honored his mother Mary by providing wine. John 19, 26 and 27 Jesus is on the cross, and then he chooses John to take care of his mother. I can't even imagine that part of it. I mean, it's enough to die for the sins of people and go through that anguish, but still on the cross, he cares about what's gonna happen to his mom. All that said, there's also a strain of Jesus' teaching that runs counter to what we would today call family values. Jesus was very much about putting the kingdom above family. You would still honor parents in light of that, but your first priority is the kingdom, And if parents are getting in the way of that, then honoring one's parents looks rather different than if they're cooperating with that mission. Or even think about a passage like Deuteronomy 13 that talks about idolatry among friends and family, that even if friends or family were doing it, you were supposed to help stone them to death for their idolatry. So family matters, Family is crucial, but there are things more important than family. We see that definitely in the ministry of Jesus. The most important thing is not your earthly family, but joining God's family. We're adopted into God's family, Ephesians 1:5, Ephesians 3.15, John 1.12, Yet to all who receive Him, to those who believe in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. First John 3, 1 John 3:1. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. If you're not yet a child of God, through grace, by faith, in the ministry of Jesus and his death on the cross for us, that's the most important thing to consider about family. And then once you have that right, make sure you honor your father and your mother. Let's take a break here. If you're on Facebook, like Pure Radio and friend me there. Podcasts of previous episodes are available on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google. Questions and comments are always welcome on my Facebook. Welcome back to the word diet. We're in Exodus 20 today, looking at commandments 5 and 6. In the first two segments, we covered the fifth commandment, which is to honor your father and mother. And now we turn to the sixth commandment, which is do not murder. A few things to say by way of introduction. First, that we've turned to what's often called the second table of the Ten Commandments, Commandments 6 through 10. And some of this stems from imagining that Commandments 1 through 5 are on the first piece of stone and Commandments 6 through 10 are on the second tablet. But much more likely, it's that there are two exact copies of the same thing. This is patterned after the ancient Near East treaty format, and Israel's holding on to both copies. So it's much more likely that Commandments 1 through 10 are on both pieces of stone. The other thing here that makes that difficult to imagine two different sets of commandments on the stones is that commandment five is an in-between. It's not clear whether it belongs more with one through four or with six through ten. And so it's certainly the case that six through ten are different, but the distinction between one through five and six through ten is not as tight as is often imagined. Now, commandments six through nine are also different, there's a few things to say about this. First of all, that people tend to remember these more easily, and why is that the case? Well, I think we have a bias toward teaching morality and avoiding big sins of commission. They have seemingly greater relevance and importance for society, and so they result in what are then universal standards of conduct. Even the pagans know about commandments six through nine. These are also the most moral commandments in a sense of behavior. I remember my dad, when I asked him about two categories of commandments, this was before he was a disciple of Jesus, and he thought the two categories would be self-discipline and loving others, and he just couldn't imagine that first category on loving God. He was so focused on the human morality components of it. Related to that, these commandments are really short And they're seemingly simple, at least initially. They're going to require a lot more detail later, in Commandments 6 and 8 in particular, to deal with contingencies. But, as Cass notes, they erect important boundaries between what is mine and what is thine, life, wife, property, and reputation, because they stand to reason and because they were established already in the ancient Near East, they need neither explanations nor promises of punishment for violation or reward for compliance, as we've seen with the other commandments they're not only short, but we're going back to negative over positive commandments. Eugene Peterson says, the abrupt change of style gives the next four a staccato austerity, no reasons given, no motivation suggested, just unqualified imperatives. That said, the negatives still imply a positive. Cass is very helpful here. He says, although stated in the negative and aimed at preventing interpersonal evils, They bespeak positive moral teachings that defend things good in themselves. The principle against murder implicitly teaches the preciousness of human life. It does not quite say that life itself is sacred or the ultimate or highest good. There will be circumstances where taking a life is permitted and others where it will even be commanded. But the ruling idea of all interpersonal relations is profound respect for the goodness of human life. Commandment 7, the prescription of adultery promotes family stability people to elevate their sexual natures by bringing them under vows of loyalty, exclusivity, and a commitment to raising together the fruits of sexual union. Commandment eight, theft, implicitly teaches respect for other people's property. And then commandment nine, bearing false witness, at stake are not only your neighbor's freedom, property, and reputation, but also the character of communal life and the proper use of the godlike powers of speech and reason." So the sixth commandment is found in Exodus 20, verse 13, and it's a good easy memory verse if you're looking for one of those. You shall not murder. Now the opening context of Exodus is interesting here. Remember back to chapter one, the midwives had refused to kill Israelite baby boys. Also note that this is so simple, it has no qualifiers. There's nothing about race or religion giving an exemption. And as we said earlier, it's short and to the point. There's no motivation or explanation required in the commandment itself, although it does turn out to be complicated, ironically leading to more ink than any other commandment. So why do we need this commandment? Well, one answer is God said so, uh, that it shows no respect for God-given, God-created life. We're destroying something God has made And imagine when people do that to us, we don't like it very much. So God weighs in and says this is completely unacceptable. It's also the case that this is for individuals, that it lays out an absolute minimum prerequisite for loving other people. It's also a sobering reminder that ending a life is devastating to those who love the person who was killed. Think about going back to your great-grandfather and eliminating that part of your family tree and just how the world would be such a different place. I remember thinking about my wife's grandpa and that he could have been killed toward the end of World War II. And if that had happened, I wouldn't have Tanya as my wife. So there's a lot that takes place, not just the individual, but the lives of those immediately and long-term impacted by this death. Certainly the case for society as well, that it's potentially devastating to allow murder. It's almost always condemned ethically and punished and constrained equally. Again, that's why a two-word explanation or two-word assertion is sufficient. Tomasino says the most fundamental consideration in human society is the right to life. We can't get along with each other if we don't recognize each other's right to exist. If we can't get past that point, every other question is moot. So that's why this commandment is first among these shorter commandments. It's not gonna appear later. The other things are also serious, but nothing's more serious than murder. Matthew Henry says it is melancholy to think as if men did not die fast enough of themselves, how ingenious and industrious they are to make instruments of death and to find out ways and means to kill each other. Now, this may seem like the easiest, tidiest commandment, but it turns out to be the most complicated, starting with the term itself. There's a difference between the word murder and kill in the English, and the Hebrew terms are even more complicated. The term is often remembered as kill, given the King James Version, but we're going to go with murder and define it as the immoral killing of another human being. Of course, when we say immoral, that begs the question, and we have to figure out what all that entails. First thing to note here is that it's ironic that Moses, who himself is a murderer, is their leader, and it's ironic that they're called to kill so many as they enter the Promised Land. Dennis Prager is helpful in providing some English examples. He says, this is why we say a terrorist murdered five people, but we say the police killed the terrorist. That is why we say, I killed a fly, not I murdered a fly, because murder is reserved for taking human life. And that is why we say, I killed him in self-defense, not I murdered him in self-defense. Just as in the English, the Hebrew is always used for the violent death of a human being. It's personal rather than impersonal, typically premeditated. If there aren't other clarifying words added, it's not for animals, self-defense, war, or capital punishment. Now, even though the commandment is short and sweet, the next few chapters of Exodus are going to pick up special cases and actually spend quite a bit of time on them. For example, Exodus 21, 12 through 14 says, "...anyone who strikes a person with a fatal blow is to be put to death. However, if it is not done intentionally, but God lets it happen, they are to flee to a place I will designate, but if anyone schemes and kills someone deliberately, that person is to be taken from my altar and put to death." So again, the Hebrew term for murder describes a premeditated and deliberate act, and that's what we see here in verses 12 and 14. Verse 12 opens by reiterating the sixth commandment, but then quickly moves to verse 13's use of however. And then the focus of the passage is really on the unintentional murders. This is also described in Numbers 35 and Deuteronomy 19.4 as without malice aforethought. forethought. And here it's interesting, the language of, but God lets it happen. So this is not premeditated. Verse 14 talks about that, that the killer is scheming deliberately, but something unintentional has happened here. In our terms, this might be something equivalent to manslaughter. Chapter 21, verses 20 and 21 of Exodus uh, talks about the same sort of concept. The key here is verse 13, what's later called a city of refuge and developed in Joshua 20 is the longest development of that principle, that uh, the person would flee to a place I will designate is what it says here in verse 13. Verse 14, they were allowed to seek God's altar as a final refuge, but as the verse here notes, it's not going to defend them if they purposely killed the person. There's another passage a little bit later, chapter 21, verses 28 through 32, that this is not a call to negligence or laziness, right? You could be unintentional and then continue to let it happen. Well, that's not acceptable either. You know, if you have a vicious dog that attacks someone the first time, well, okay, maybe. But the second time, no, you get the death penalty for that because you should have taken care of business the first time. So Exodus 21, 28, and 29 says, if a bull gores a man or woman to death, the bull is to be stoned to death, and its meat must not be eaten, but the owner of the bull will not be held responsible. If, however, the bull has had the habit of goring, and the owner has been warned, but has not kept it penned up, and it kills a man or woman, the bull is to be stoned, and its owner also is to be put to death. Another interesting passage is in Exodus 21, verses 22 through 25. If people are fighting and hit a pregnant woman, and she gives birth prematurely, can also be translated as a miscarriage, but there is no serious injury. The offender must be fined whatever the woman's husband demands and the court allows. But if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. So again, we have an unintentional action that causes damage or even death and what to do about it. Verse 22, if it's a minor injury, just a cash settlement determined by the plaintiff and the judge... Verses 23 through 25, if there's serious injury, then there's to be exact retribution and justice. So we have a law of retaliation invoked here. We often think of eye for an eye as uncivilized, but actually, especially in that time, it would act to limit vengeance as well as promote a just outcome. As a broader application, this speaks to the importance of measured discipline in parenting and in criminal penalties. The thing that makes this passage difficult, I've already alluded to, verse 22 can be translated either as miscarriage or premature birth, and so it has some application to abortion depending on how the verse is translated. In any case, this would seem to be a rare occurrence, so it's a bit surprising that this is included, but it does underline the protection of the vulnerable mother and child, including the fact that unintentional harm here is actually to receive a more severe penalty. As Cass notes, since one can never be sure whether a nearby woman is pregnant, men are encouraged to be careful in the presence of all women. And the last special case covered in Exodus to cover here is Exodus 22 verses 2 and 3. If a thief is caught breaking in at night and is struck a fatal blow, the defender is not guilty of bloodshed. But if it happens after sunrise, the defender is guilty of bloodshed. So this is interesting because it defines reasonable self-defense through this context. And not just reasonable self-defense, but also defending the rights of others. As Cass puts it, a thief entering in darkness likely poses a threat also to life, but to kill the daytime thief is murder. All right, let's take our last break here. Please consider becoming a P3 partner at Pureradio.org. Please spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, and this show. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in Exodus 20 today, covering Commandments 5 and 6. In the first two segments, we covered the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. And in the last segment, we started into the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. As we described in the last segment, it is a very short commandment, short and sweet to the point, but then it turns out to be really complicated. So Exodus continues by laying out all sorts of special cases that deal with some of those contingencies. So we dealt with all of that in Exodus, and now we want to move into the teachings of Christ and then talk about a number of applications to policy and practice. So let's start with Jesus and what he said in Matthew 5, 21 through 24. You've heard it, that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to her brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says you fool will be in the danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Bill Hybels makes a comparison. He says, when gang-style murderers kill, they usurp God's right to number a man's days. When suburban-style murderers kill, they usurp God's right to measure a man's worth. And of course, killing is worse, but anger is and cursing other people is not great either. So, Jesus here is extending the standards of righteousness. You know, murder and the Ten Commandments in general are a nice place to start, but a lousy place to finish in measuring how we treat other people. Think about the rich young ruler who points to his, himself with some pride that he has adhered to this narrow list as if that's all that God would possibly care about. The sixth commandment then defines the minimum standard how can I love others if I want to kill them? Ultimately, Jesus is going to take it to a very different place just a few verses later, Matthew 5, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So here, Jesus is moving from actions to words and thoughts. The Apostle John writes in 1 John three fifteen. anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. So, The fifth commandment had defined an attitude which led to actions. Here the focus is on the actions, but Jesus has also turned this into a discussion of attitude, word, and thoughts. That then extends to different actions and inactions as we figure out how we're going to treat other people. And again, murdering is just the very minimum standard there. In verse 22, Jesus then gives examples that illustrate dishonor in line with the fifth commandment. And rendering someone as vain or worthless, the Hebrew term rock here is similar to the third commandment, making one's name, God's name in that case, vain or worthless. Now he's extending that to other people. My favorite example of this relates to driving. Think about people who drive slower than you and we're prone to think of them as morons. And if they drive faster than you, they're considered maniacs. And that says more about the people saying those things, and that includes me. I have the same thoughts go through my head than it does really about the people who are driving in front of us or around us. I think another part of this is that the criticism is against labeling people rather than focusing on the thing that they're doing wrong. When you call someone a fool or raka, you're giving them an identity that is not consistent with being a child of God or a non-believer who we hope will become a child of God. You're not focusing on the actions that are at the heart of the trouble, and it's just not helpful. So we focus on actions and we work towards correcting those. We don't have the right to identify people with such labels. And then verses 23 and 24, basically, how can you love God who forgives you of so much while remembering how someone has something against you? Or, by implication, someone has wronged you. You've got to deal with that first. Last point here is just the implication that anger often stops short of harm only because the consequences are feared. We'll see the same thing with adultery when we get to the seventh commandment, that lust is a desire to do something that may be avoided simply because you're afraid of circumstances getting caught, right? In the sixth commandments, the same sort of thing. Anger may imply a desire to murder, and I would kill you except I'm worried about the consequences. Well, that's not a very impressive heart, and that's what Jesus is critiquing here in Matthew 5. So verse 22 talks about anger. The other classic passage on this is from Paul, Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. Do not give the devil a foothold. There's no biblical commands not to get angry. We're just told not to do it improperly or too quickly. That's usually the the issue, and that's usually how it's done. We get angry at the wrong things, and we get angry improperly. Garrett Kaiser has a terrific book on this called The Enigma of Anger, so check that out if you're into the topic. Verse 24 in Matthew 5 also talks about getting and seeking reconciliation. And so it implies the need for us to clear the table of our own wrongs, even if I'm responsible for 10% of the problem, then it is still on me to seek reconciliation and forgiveness on that 10%. I like what Patrick Henry Reardon says about cities of refuge in Joshua 20, On this point. He says, in regard to the heat of avenging passion, the biblical text shows here a conspicuous respect for the therapeutic influence of time. It recognizes that time is not on the side of passion, but of reason. Experience indicates that the passions, if not deliberately fueled and stoked, are marked by a native entropy. They resemble in this respect the flames often used to describe them. Left to themselves, the passions tend to diminish over time. Reason, therefore, unlike the passions, knows how to wait. Reason is the realm of thought, and thought, unlike passion requires the discipline of time. Consequently, properly cultivated reason is slow to anger, from James 119 and Proverbs sixteen32 And there are a lot of principles that can help us with this, right? A lot of times we get angry because our expectations are out of whack, so to fix those, a lot of times we just have no vision for God's economy and his kingdom and how he corrects things. 1 Corinthians 13 talks about love, and part of that implies not easily angered. Romans twelve eighteen and 19, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. What about empathy and humility? We usually hold others to much higher standards than we hold ourselves. How about we reverse that? We should take responsibility for our part of the sin, as I mentioned earlier. And we almost always have a significant role in such things. James 1, 13 through 15, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. And anger causes a lot of death. Now let's close with a lot of different policy applications here. The first is capital punishment. And so certainly that has implications for incentives. If you're going to be killed for doing something, you're less likely to do it. But capital punishment, at least best conceived, is also about and mostly about justice. It's interesting that capital punishment is mentioned for murdering an innocent person in all five books of the Pentateuch. And again, capital punishment is not an immoral killing of another human being. In fact, at times it's commanded in the scriptures, four times in fact, Chapter twenty-one, verses fifteen and seventeen of Exodus, you have godly capital punishment for murder, which takes us back to Genesis nine, five and six. And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal and from each human being too. I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Whoever sheds human blood by humans, shall their blood be shed. From the image of God has God made mankind, and so that's reiterated here in Exodus twenty-one. It's also, connecting back to the fifth commandment, for cursing and attacking parents. Cass is helpful here. He says, if read legalistically, this seems unduly harsh. Clearly, there's much need for judicial discernment, and the rabbinic tradition supplied volumes on the subject. But the principle stands as a light in God's way. To strike your father and mother is a crime equivalent to murder. More remarkable still is the second deadly offense against parents to revile or curse them. But to kill them as your parents, that's what cursing is, people to whom you are indebted for your very existence. The denial of your creators is at once an attack on the creator and a metaphorical self-annihilation. The punishment fits the crime. The fourth example of capital punishment in the scriptures is for kidnapping and slave trade. And again, this may seem like overkill, but again, Cass is helpful. He points back to the crime of Joseph's brothers And he says that this repeats that original offense and shows contempt for the Lord's deliverance of the people of Israel from Egypt. The offender embraces the despotism of Pharaoh who profits from repudiating the dignity of his fellow man through slavery. It's simply unacceptable to follow in Pharaoh's footsteps. Now all that said, capital punishment is still challenging in a contemporary worldly setting. One thing to consider in favor of capital punishment is to not demand the ultimate punishment, demeans life in general, and fails to value the life of the innocent one murdered in particular. I remember hearing Dr. Laura one time ripping those who do candlelight vigils for those about to be executed while doing nothing for the families of those who have been murdered. Those values are just not consistent with a biblical ethic. We also know that God establishes authorities which are given the right to do capital punishment if done carefully and properly. So we defer to the state here, biblically, Romans 13 and other passages, if it's done justly and appropriately. One cannot make a uniform case in opposition to capital punishment from Scripture. One can only make a contingent case against capital punishment in the way that it's practiced. There are other applications that are much more complicated the idea of just war right if you can't murder you can't kill certainly self-defense is more reasonable national defense is reasonable but how far do you take that does it apply to the war in iraq and afghanistan and the like it's interesting that bonhoeffer was initially a pacifist but then was willing to be in on the plot to assassinate hitler there's a character in saving private ryan a sniper who repeatedly asked for forgiveness so you know, I, this is a very complicated topic. At least it would involve humility, recognizing that man is not very good at executing war and erring against involvement in such things. Obvious applications to abortion. Euthanasia is another one. Although euthanasia, a lot of times we conflate some categories, saving life rather than prolonging death. What's an ordinary or an extraordinary means of saving life What about honoring the wishes of the person and so on? Euthanasia is far more complicated than it's often sold. Suicide applies here as well. Uh, Orthodoxy, Chesterton, very good on talking about what a devastating sin that suicide is. Not just for those who are left behind in terms of family and friends, but it actually attacks the institution of life. In this sense, he compares it to what divorce does to marriage. It's not just a divorce. It's that you're attacking the institution of marriage. But then what do we do with life-threatening activities, people who use tobacco or immoderate use of alcohol or food? In a sense, they're pursuing an early death as well. These behaviors are not consistent with seeing the body as a temple of God, and they have application to the Sixth Commandment. We could talk about animal rights. That goes further afield, and I really wouldn't use the Sixth Commandment for that. I would go back to Genesis 1 and a proper understanding of the creation mandate and our call as humans to redeem fallen nature. A few thoughts to close this out. read an essay by Bernd Bannenwetsch, who was really helpful on this. He talked about how it's important to directly confront things that are murder-ish. He talked about the story of David Bathsheba, Uriah, and Nathan the prophet confronting him, and that Nathan confronts him with what it is and then calls it what it is. We don't want to fall for euphemism. We don't want to you know, beat around the bushes. This is really important stuff, so we want to call it what it is. And then the other observation Ben and Witch makes about the David-Nathan story is that Nathan pins it on covetousness. He connects it to adultery and theft, but ultimately it's covetousness that Nathan pins as the source of the sin, as the catalyst. So, what do we do with this commandment as New Testament believers? Well, of course, we don't murder, but the positive here is to work to preserve life. And we shouldn't hate. We shouldn't dwell in anger. We shouldn't curse others. Instead, we should love others. Why? Because your parents, back to the fifth commandment, gave you life. And then here are the sixth commandment. God gave you life and gave you love. That's the appropriate response to a good and great God. Lord, I pray for the fifth commandment in particular for my listeners, that they would wrestle faithfully with what it means to honor their parents, whether they're 22 years old living at home or whether they're 60 years old and their father just passed away a year ago. Lord, what does it look like for us to honor our parents? And Lord, the challenge of the sixth commandment for most of us is not killing people, but it's what Jesus talked about in Matthew 5 to be not to be angry, to clear the table of the things we've done right, to have humility and empathy for those around us. Lord, help us to be better on these things. Help us to depend on the Spirit help us to practice solitude, help us to get around others, help us to wrestle with the sources of our anger and to give those things to you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Previous episodes of The Word Diet are available by podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google. Interact with me on Facebook, and we hope you'll join us next time on The Word Diet.